when Jesus, um, the trial, then the trial and crucifixion of Jesus uh, before he arose from the dead. So, uh, Jesus and Peter, I'm going to focus on that. Uh, Luke 22 records Jesus and Peter's conversion, a conversation about Peter's declaration that he's ready, he said he was ready to go to prison and death with Jesus. And Jesus response that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows. And then uh, when the rooster crowed, uh, when the rooster crowed, uh, Jesus looked at Peter and Peter went out and wept bitterly. That's what scripture says. And then the morning of the resurrection, when John and Peter entered into tomb, uh, it says, they saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So that statement there, it makes me wonder what they believed. What did they believe when they saw the empty tomb? Because it says, for they didn't understand the resurrection. So it makes me think they believed something bad had happened. They weren't believing he was raised from the dead. Uh, so they went, uh, it says there that they went to their own homes. And uh, then later, when a number of the disciples were together, uh, Peter said to them, this is in John 20, I believe, I am going fishing. And that night they went fishing, they caught nothing. And then Jesus showed up on the shore and, and had a breakfast cooked for them. And then they, they, uh, they caught, he told them how to fish or which side or I forget exactly, but it, they caught, it says, 153 large fish. <coughs> But that makes me smile too, like they counted them, obviously. And uh, then, then Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me three times? And uh, what I want to say about that is I think there's no doubt that what the disciples were very uh, confused and very discouraged. And, and uh, they didn't have hope and they didn't have a sense of mission. Uh, but they did, they did have hope and sense of mission after Jesus uh, spent time with them after the resurrection. So I want to say there's hope for us. And I'll come back to that later. Uh, this morning, I, want, I, I gave you a handout there, mostly to try to help you stay with me a little, and especially in relation to uh, mission and vision. So this morning I want to describe uh, what I understand to be some of the main characteristics of the New Testament church. And uh, there are the things I'm going to mention, it has a mission of purpose, it has a shared vision, it has struggles with relational and discipling issues. It clarifies beliefs and practices, and it has ordained leaders. 
So what are the characteristics? So the first one uh, is more a mission of purpose. Now, some of what I'm going to say here this morning, I've already said in sermons lately. And I'm saying it again this morning because I'm trying to summarize what I understand to be the mission and vision of the church, and I, I feel like I need to say it again this morning. So, if you say, well, I heard that before, yes, you did. So, the, the mission of the early church and the mission of the church today is Jesus' words in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which was spoken just before he ascended to heaven. And in this commission statement, Jesus said the mission of the church of Jesus Christ is to make disciples of all nations. And uh, that's the idea of all cultures and nationalities and people groups. And immediately following that statement, is his statement, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Uh, and then he says, too, that I will be with afterward, that I will be with you unto the end. I need a watch here, so. Uh, so these statements present the mission of the church is making disciples who, who are able to do whatever Christ wants them to do. They're becoming more like Jesus. They, they become more aware of what God wants of them, what Jesus wants of them, and they're able to do it. And they can do that because, because Jesus is with them. So, uh, how do you make disciples? And I, I hope you've thought about this. I've thought a lot about this in my life. And and uh, if this is the mission of the church, we really ought to spend time thinking about it. How do you make disciples? So I'm, I'm going to start with baptism. Um, of course, there's this issue that people have to, uh, I think the two words that are used frequently is believe and repent. And that, that definitely precedes baptism, but I'm starting with baptism here. I don't, I don't believe the uh, King James Version word baptism or baptize uh, needs to translate the Greek word here is uh, primarily, I've said this before, is primarily focused on water baptism. I don't think it is. Uh, the Greek word translated baptize actually means to dip into. Like, like when you die a garment, or to submerge or immerse in. And to immerse believers in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit includes bringing people into identification with Christ's life, teaching, death, and resurrection. When you immerse people into Christ and you baptize them, this is what it means. Water baptism 
is about this. It signifies this. It is a public declaration that I have identified with Christ, that I have surrendered to Christ as Savior and Lord, that I have allowed myself to identify with Christ's death to such an extent that I am committed to, willing to, die to sin, and that I am allowing my sins to be there's various ways to say this. Allowing my feet to be nailed to the cross, allowing my sins to die with Christ on the cross. And of course, uh, if you've been immersed in Christ's death, as Romans 6 talks about, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So if you have identified with his death, you are also identified with his resurrection. And so, as it says in Romans 6, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We'll live a new life, is the idea. So this is immersed in Christ and, and the, um, the death of Christ in, in baptism, identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection. So how do, how do we immerse people in in Christ as a body? So while water baptism is a personal declaration that I am identified with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, I think we all know that making a disciple who is able to do whatever Jesus wants the disciple to do requires more than water baptism. I think we all know this. It takes more than being baptized with water. It, it requires um, it, it requires being immersed. In the presence of God, being immersed in the Word of God, being immersed in the worship, being immersed in the, in the presence of fellow believers is a major factor in growth is other believers that we are in fellowship with who help us grow. And we help them grow. And discipling people for the purpose of growth. All of this is necessary for for growing. This is how people are immersed in God in Christ. It's through these methods. So I said this before that to immerse ourselves as a congregation means that we congregate to worship God, to listen to God's word, to fellowship in the Spirit, to talk about and decide together what it means to follow Jesus today in our culture, in, in, in our lives, to talk about our lives and how God is working and what He is doing in my personal life, talk about that, with other believers, uh, to confess and repent together, to acknowledge areas of failure and areas in which we need to grow, to do fun things together, like eat, 
I'm sorry, but I'm already hungry. I've been hungry since we got here. Okay, there's something to be said for eating food together. So doing doing fun, um, fellowshipping kind of things together, pray together. <clears throat> so some of us, Brother Leon, are just beyond the fellowshipping together. Okay. Uh, doing things together, okay? This, this is all what it means to immerse people to immerse themselves as a congregation. To immerse oneself in God as a congregation means that each one of us is immersed in and aware of Jesus in our personal lives. We, we are pursuing that in our personal lives, not just in public. And we do this in our corporate life. Um, and, and, of course, I think we all know this. For these things to happen in our personal lives and in our corporate lives, they take, they take intention. They take perseverance. Uh, they don't just happen because somebody wishes they would. You, you have to do things. You have to plan things that make them possible. And... And it's also true that the good results that this corporate life and personal life and immersion in God might have is not just a human effort thing because the Holy Spirit has to be working. I'm smiling a little bit because it, it kind of strikes me as humorous that. Um, that I need to say that because it's as if, oh, we have to remember that God is alive and He has the Holy Spirit and He still works. So it wasn't all up to us just to do everything, but we still have things that we need to do for these things to happen. So I, I am convinced that this is who a New Testament believer is and what a New Testament church is like because. One reason I'm convinced of that is the kind of church we see in Acts in the epistles. So, uh, if we had time, which we don't, we're not going to do it, but uh, for a few minutes, we could have a little workshop here on developing a mission statement for the church. Uh, so I, I have a few notes here, and these, these are not for us to do something with this morning. They, they are actually taken from some other source, which I have uh, at the bottom there. So the mission of a church is a broad statement that explains why we exist, and it doesn't change often. For churches, this is established by Christ. And we essentially just get to say the same thing that Christ said in our own words. As a simple example, a church's mission might be making disciples and planting churches. That would be a mission statement. So questions for us to help clarify what uh, your church's mission, our church's mission statement might be. Be, or what do we do? 
What ministries do we run? What talents, skills, resources, and experience does our congregation offer? Whom do we serve? While we always seek to serve anyone we come in contact with in daily life, other particular groups of people, or a particular location area that our congregation is in contact with, or passionate about serving. As I'm reading this, I could think you might be thinking this is ridiculous. Well, it may be a little bit, but it's not really. How do we serve them? What practices, theories of change, programs, ways of doing life with people do we have, do we bring? And the mission statement is about what each church does. It is a one-sentence statement describing the reason a church exists and is used to help guide decisions about priorities, actions, and responsibilities. The mission statement informs concerning why you exist based on what Jesus says the mission of the church is. The mission statement is a specific assignment Christ has given to a local church in fulfilling their part of the Great Commission. The mission answers the key question, what does your church exist to do? A clearly articulated mission statement is written in the present tense. It is a doing statement. It is short and sharp. It begins with, we exist to. The mission statement answers the questions, who are we? What should we be doing because of who we are? So, I uh, struggled quite a bit with this. <coughs> I decided I would, I would offer two mission statements, and uh, they are, I'm not offering them because I think they are what our church's mission statement has to be. I'm just helping you. I just want to help you think, okay? It could be something like, we exist to make obedient, fruitful disciples who are immersed in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Scripture, and fellowship of the saints for the purpose of growing God's church. Or, we exist to grow disciples who are immersed in Jesus Christ and His Word and fellow believers, learning to do whatever it is that Jesus wants them to do and working to make disciples who work to grow the kingdom of God. Uh, you don't get the idea that I think uh, I've developed, you know, the mission statement for this church. Um, I have a, you know, <clears throat> idea of you now we would all get in a circle together and we would have a conversation. And uh, people have ideas, and sometimes ideas are very fruitful. And, uh, you know, you share them, and someone else has an idea, and after a while, something kind of jails. Uh, <clears throat> I've participated in this kind of conversation at least twice, extended conversation over days and weeks in previous places, and I do know this is not easy to do. Can be invigorating, but it's not easy. Okay, the second characteristic 
of a new person in church, it has a shared vision of what God wants to accomplish through this church. So, a compelling vision it does these things. It encourages unity, creates energy, and provides purpose, fosters risk-taking, enhances leadership, promotes excellence, sustains ministry. A vision is what a group wants to achieve in a defined period of time to contribute to achieving its mission. That's what a vision is. It expresses a strong hope of achieving something better. It points to number one, where the congregation believes God is calling them to be in the future, like in a year or three years or five, whatever. Or sometimes as far out as ten years. Number two, the transformation they desire to see in their church and the world as a result of people coming to know Jesus and seeing God's kingdom come. The vision statement articulates the kind of future the congregation desires to see and what they're aiming to do towards that in a specific time frame. That's what a vision is. And ideally, it will be grounded in both its history and its local, regional, whatever context, uh, as well as what does the Bible say a church should be doing. So there are a number of questions there which you have. I'm not going to uh, read those right now. I'm trying to save time. So in Habakkuk 18, we have this verse, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. That's, that's a pretty good summary statement of vision. This is what it does. makes it possible to run. So, in light of uh, where we are in church life, I, I'm offering this as aspects of possible Visionary kind of statement, ideas, factors to consider. And so I, I believe our vision for the next five years has to include the following items to choose a stable ministry team that relieves Leon of bishop responsibility, to decide if we are going to be one congregation that meets in one place or two congregations that meet in two places. Now, forgive me for being so blunt there. I'm just saying my personal thought. If we meet in one place as one congregation, to develop a meeting place that meets the needs of everyone and is compatible to a meaningful worship experience. <clears throat> I think that's why this is arranged this way this morning and it has nothing to do with me. I have no idea whose idea it was, but I think it was an attempt. To identify what church activities we want to maintain or initiate and the purpose of each one. Uh, I'll just stop there. The reason I'm saying that is, I remember 
growing up here, and I know whatever went on when I grew up certainly is not necessary to be today. It is. But what I remember is uh, Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, Sunday Wednesday night service, and some other activities too. And uh, pretty much everybody attended all of these. And uh, I, I am very sure, I'm not God, but I'm very sure that some of the reason for, for the feeling that we have that we're not really connected because we meet at two places is because we hardly meet very much together. And I'm not faulting anyone. I'm not. I'm just saying, I am very sure this is a factor. So, to identify what church activities we want to maintain or initiate and the purpose of each one. To identify what activities we will use to grow disciples, both in relation to our children and in relation to our, our adults. And I'm talking there about things like, like, um, Men getting together, ladies getting together, uh, meeting with children. Uh, what can we do to bless parents? I mean, there's a whole host of places, issues. Uh, what, 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 are, what are we going to do? What activities are we going to try to uh, encourage? for this thing that makes disciples to happen. Uh, another one to affirm the role of the school in the life of the church and the mission of the church. Uh, and there, there could be others. There are others. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list. And I'm not trying, I'm not, I'm not going to, I didn't prepare any business statement. I, I just thought, I would just say some things that I think fit in the vision category. So, <clears throat> I believe uh, Acts 2 and Acts 4 are an example or illustration of a church that has a mission and vision. Uh, these two passages give us a vision of how the early church immersed themselves in God, the Word, and each other. And they, the two passages allow us to see the life-changing effects of Jesus' resurrection in the lives of his followers, and they give us some of the characteristics of the New Testament church. Now, <clears throat> If we had a lot of time, I would read all of that, but I know better than doing that. <coughs> you, could, uh, you could have an assignment here and go read Acts 2 and Acts 4 sometime this week. Um, so, here, here are some items, uh, characteristics that we find in Acts 2 and Acts 4. Um, the people in Acts 2 and 4 have voluntarily received the word of Christ and surrendered to Christ as Savior and Lord. They are receiving the teaching and instruction of the apostles. 
They are engaged in fellowship. They are breaking bread together. Or they perhaps say this. They, they were breaking or breaking in these passages, breaking bread together as one family. And they seem to be doing a lot of it. They like to eat. Apparently. But my guess is that the eating together a lot had more to do with fellowship. Whether they're talking about meals in homes or when they're gathered together corporately, they are eating together. And I'm not being critical. I'm not. <laughs> in none of my statements, I'm not being critical if we don't have a fellowship meal but once a month. I'm not. I'm just saying. They get a lot of this. And I, I think it also includes the Lord's Supper. Which I'm suspicious they had at least weekly. <clears throat> uh, in Acts 2 and 4, they are engaged in spiritual exercises, the prayer of being example. They, they are gathering together for worship often, or making what is normally called mine, it belongs to me. They are making what belongs to me available to others. It's obvious in the text that's their mindset. That's how they're thinking about what they own privately. It's available to others. Uh, they are in one accord. They seem to have a harmonious spirit. They seem to be... Um, feel loving toward each other, and they have a unified purpose. Yeah. <clears throat> they are meeting with each other daily, not just on Sunday. They enjoy each other's presence. They are attracting others to themselves. I mean, this is like 5,000 today, 3,000 tomorrow. No, I don't know. There's a lot of people. Uh, they belonged to each other. We see that their words and actions testified to the resurrection of Christ. They were um, I think I'm at a loss for words. They, they were so shocked, delighted, cranked up, I don't know, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They thought he was dead and it's all done. And now he's alive. They know he's alive. They saw him. He talked to me. Okay, the resurrection of Christ. We, we, are, we are not alone. And he has done this marvelous thing God has done. Okay, they, they are just enthused uh, about this. They, they saw themselves as the present expression of the kingdom of God in the world. So they took action. Okay, uh, the third characteristic I have of the early church, it had struggles with relational and discipling issues. 
and I'm going to give a few examples. Uh, Act 5, Ananias and Sapphira. I'm, I'm sharing this because it is very true to have troubles. And I'm sharing this because I think it is easy. I've had my troubles, you've had your troubles, we've all had troubles, okay? I'm sharing this because the fact that we have struggles does not mean that we are lost. It doesn't mean we're a total disaster. It doesn't mean we're a hopeless case. So Ananias and Sapphira, we know their story. They sold some property, and the husband brought part of the money and claimed that it was the full amount. So, please, don't. Do this. So his wife knew what he had done, and Peter somehow knew that this is really, really striking to me. Uh, is there anybody in this room that if somebody walked in and would do something like, in, like this man did, that you would know he's alive? You would just look at him and you can tell it's a lie. Is there anyone here that claim that ability? You know, it's just, I don't know. It's really, um, I've thought sometimes with people that I, I wonder if, you know, kind of like, I wonder if, but I don't know. But here, here's Peter, you know, uh, some of these circumstances it says, I think the King James says things like it's, he fastened his eyes on him. That's like, that's like, get a, get a gaze, you know, and you just like look over your glasses and, you know, he's not going to get away. I'm going to see him, he's going to see me. We're gonna we're gonna think on this, <laughs> but yeah. So Ananias and Sapphira, and then um, he told Ananias that he had lied, and he lied to God. And Ananias, what about doing? He just fell over here, just like that. And then his wife came in three hours later, and she lied, and she fell over here. Okay, <coughs> now, forgive me. <coughs> I'm, not, I'm not recommending that we just, you know, see if we can get people to fall over there. All right? And you have to admit, this is a radical vessel. There's no nothing around. It's like, what in the world was God up to? This wasn't just Peter. Oh, Peter, you need, you need to get over your problem. You're killing people off like this. But it is severe and radical. And then it says, in that passage, great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Yeah, I suppose so. You know, like I'll tell you one thing, won't be any more lying like this about Southern Land. <clears throat> These people were alive in a very dynamic sort of life. 
when the heck start singing, and uh, we had this uh, thing with John Mark and Paul and Barnabas. And halfway through the first missionary journey, uh, John Mark left Paul and Barnabas, went back home. And that's why Paul refused to take John Mark along on the second journey. And it's possible, we don't know sure why John Mark left, but it's possible it was halfway through the journey, and it, it was, uh, as I remember, it, it mentioned that he left almost one verse. I think it's his verse. Next verse, after it says that Paul and Barnabas, whereas before all of the all of the statements about what they were doing it was Barnabas and Paul. So that. Says to me, I wonder if something changed here, and maybe Barnabas had been in charge, and now Paul was. These are challenging things, okay? They're just human nature. Whatever, whatever all that is. All right? So, John Mark, apparently, he was either Barnabas's nephew or else his cousin. I'm not sure. But one of the other. But anyway, later, they took healed. I'm just saying that things happen and they can be redeemed. Uh, Apollos was instructed at Ephesus by Priscilla and Aquila because uh, he knew only, it says, John the Baptist's baptism, and he didn't understand too much about Jesus. I don't understand how that can be, but that's what the scripture says. So, he received instruction and was a powerful preacher afterward. First, in First Corinthians, Paul addresses a number of church problems, uh, things like choosing one leader over another, a man is living with his stepmother, a believer taking a believer to a secular court to settle a dispute, questions about marriage and being single, and uh, concerns about food, sacrifice to idols, and there are some other issues too. Uh, all these kinds of um, troubles in relationships and discipling. And then, um, I'm smiling a little bit about this one, and I don't, I'm not making any grand statement about anything, but uh, in Philippians 4, uh, Paul, Paul, uh, he says this, I urge, uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce the name, Euodia and Syntica to live in harmony in the Lord. And these are two women. Uh, and he says, I ask you, also, to help these women, is what it says. It's like, please, please help these two women. They're not getting along. It's, 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 it's troubling. It's not helpful. It's bad. Can you help them? Help them. Help, help them uh, live in harmony. There, there, there are these in the New Testament and God. Uh, We, we know these things are true, and whatever our part is, you know, uh, it's, it's a call. 
And uh, it's, not, it's not the end of the world, but it's a call, um, call to seek the Lord in these things. And the fourth characteristic I have is um, the early church clarified beliefs and practices. And the New Testament church does this. Clarify belief, beliefs and practices. So we have examples of this in the New Testament. Uh, the one is the, the issue of whether Gentiles could belong to the New Testament church without becoming Jewish proselytes or converting to Judaism, a very clear status, or keeping the law of Moses. And all of that is summarized, uh, I think, often in the New Testament with the term being circumcised. It's kind of like shorthand for this problem. So in Acts 10, I'll give several uh, events here. In Acts 10, we have the, uh, uh, Peter, Peter going with the several people who came from Joppa. Uh, from Cornelius, asking for him to come because uh, somewhere was revealed to Cornelius that there's this man over there who can help us. So when Peter went with the man, the man uh, some, no, I was, I was wrong. Peter was in Joppa. Some brothers from Joppa went with Peter Cornelius. And Cornelius and his relatives and friends, whoever was there, became believers and received the Holy Spirit without becoming proselytes, without being circumcised and keeping the law. And when Peter uh, and the six men who went with him returned to Jerusalem, the Jewish believers, some of them, criticized Peter for entering the Gentile's house and eating with uh, a Gentile. And then Peter explained what had happened, and the Jews stopped objecting. Okay? Now, as I remember, I think it's the very next verse after that, it's it says, uh, meanwhile. So at the same time that happened, this other thing was going on. Some people were still convinced that Gentiles needed to come, become proselytes. So in Acts 11, it says that Jewish believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. They did not know what to do with the Gentiles. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed in terms of the Lord. So the, the issue was not settled with Peter explaining himself when he returned from baptizing Cornelius. So, after the first missionary journey, uh, 
or Galatians 2. But this is before the Jerusalem conference. So this is about the same issue. Um, in Galatians 2, 11 and following, Paul said that certain people came from Jerusalem before they came from Jerusalem and promoted making proselytes, people who had to keep the law, be circumcised. Paul says, before they came, Peter had been fellowshipping with and eating with Gentile believers who had not been circumcised. But when these people came from Jerusalem, who were opposed to eating and fellowshipping with Gentiles, Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles because he was afraid of offending the Jews from Jerusalem. So it says in that passage, Paul said, what do you make of this? He says, in the King James, he says, I withstood Paul to his face because he was, what's it say? What? To be blamed, he was a fault. Now, the, the, the good thing about this, I mean, that probably needed to be done, but the good thing about it, I think, I think Paul and Peter are made out quite well. And we're good friends after this. And I'm just saying, this is a belief issue and a struggle. And then we have Acts 15, which is about, happened a little later, and is about the same issue. And, um, I think I sent an email a while back in response to Hill's question about Acts 15. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to go into all of that. Um, it says in Acts 15 that Paul and Barnabas were ended up of Syria, Syria after the first missionary journey, and men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, and uh, one translation says that they argued vehemently. The disagreement was very sharp. And so finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and the elders, the ordained at Jerusalem, about whether the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Now, I have a reason for going through this. <clears throat> so the process for resolution was, number one, the church in Antioch sent a delegation to Jerusalem to seek a solution. Number two, the delegates met with the church leaders to give their reports, and they set another date to continue the discussion. Number three, Paul and Barnabas gave their reports. Four, James summarized the reports and drew up a conclusion or resolution. This is what I've heard. This is what this sounds like. This is what I think should happen. Everyone, five, everyone accepted the resolution and agreed to support and abide by it. Uh, six, the council sent a letter with delegates back to Antioch to report the conclusion. 
So the conclusion was that Gentile believers did not need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. But they needed, they didn't need to do that, but they needed to do those four things. Abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Abstain from sexual immorality, which was a common part of idol worship. Abstain from consuming blood or eating the meat of a strangled animal. Now, the, the thing about these, I think I'm right about this. Apart, apart from the issue of circumcision, these four requirements uh, reflected the main concerns Jews had with Gentile converts. You know, it's this concern that these Gentiles have lived a heathen, debauched life. And they are going to now get in the church, just like they are, and they're just going to go on and live a hell-bent life, just like they've been. Um, I, I mean, Jews <coughs> uh, saw themselves as religious people, very committed to God. These Gentiles are not. And these, these four items... In my judgment, they were main concerns to the Jews. And in some ways, uh, this solution uh, was somewhat of a compromise, I think, but it met the needs of everybody. So it was a resolution. And I'm not making any grand statement about any of that. I'm saying that's, that's what it was. Okay, here's another one in the New Testament, Colossians 2. And I'm not going to read any of it or go into it. But in Colossians 2, Paul addresses four or five issues of the day. And they are what's called formalism, mysticism, asceticism, narcissism. It's really convenient when all those words in and I have seen them. No, I didn't come up with that. All right? Formalism, mysticism, asceticism, Gnosticism. And the, and the Gnosticism one is also addressed in First John. So those plus traditions that are not rooted in the gospel, Paul speaks to that. Uh, and that the, root, the traditions that are not rooted in the gospel uh, are called in the King James the rudiments of the world. I'm going on. The New Testament contains many doctrinal belief statements and many statements about how to live. These statements address proper attitudes, proper behavior, proper relationships, proper ways to dress, proper things to eat and not eat. Uh, depending on the circumstance. Some of that's connected to relationships. Uh, some of these statements uh, may have a cultural component, but even if that is true, uh, it is still clear that the early church did address these kind of issues. They talked about them. 
Now, I want to comment on something here. Um, and I'm not, I'm not making any statement about anybody in this church. Uh, a common belief in our day is that a church does not have the authority or freedom to make applications of commands or principles of Scripture. And it's, it, I've heard it stated this way. Uh, a church cannot go beyond the words of Scripture concerning how to live one's life. And if you do, uh, then you're guilty of legalism. <coughs> I've heard that various times, not only on here, but on this side. So I want to say that I believe a characteristic of a New Testament church is that it affirms, I'm running out of time, it affirms its common beliefs, standards, and traditions. A New Testament church has a common creed, and this is a shared understanding of the beliefs and practices that guide the community. A, a biblical community requires shared content of beliefs. And shared forms by which the beliefs are expressed. This, this is, uh, this term, whatever term you want to use for this, this, this can be called the church's common creed. This is what we believe. And in addition to a common creed that states its beliefs, a biblical community uh, has a, a common, written or unwritten, shared understanding of what is considered normal behavior. This is who a believer in Jesus, uh, as stated in the Lord, this, this is who the person is. And this is not, this doesn't have to be some detailed code. Statement of uh, belief and conduct, but there has to be some understanding of who is a believer and who, what does it mean to follow Jesus as Lord. <coughs> and another thing I want to say is that a New Testament church has common traditions. Uh, it uses traditions to perpetuate the purpose and common creed and to pass on to the people of the community uh, the values contained in the creed and the beliefs. Because the traditions contained in Scripture are the traditions that are not rooted in the Gospel or not rooted in Scripture. So, I'll give you some examples of what I mean by traditions. Valuable traditions, okay? They are things like baby dedications, baptism, communion, public testimony, singing, preaching, praying, marriage, anointing with oil, loving of women, the practice of simplicity, the practice of modesty. The practice of fellowship, expressions of love, sharing of one's goods with those in need, and, and many more. These, these are traditions that transmit 
we found that a group of people considered valuable, important. Uh, the one thing I failed to do this morning, <coughs> um, I, I failed to include in my sermon is the issue of values. Okay, if you're going to have a mission and a vision, you also have to have in mind what the values are, what values do you hold that you are unwilling to sacrifice in order to achieve the mission and the vision. Does that statement make sense to you? If you don't have in mind what your values are, and you're not going to sacrifice this in order to achieve that, if you don't have that, the end justifies the means. It's going to be unscriptural. So the concepts and traditions of the community embody the community's values. It takes with the beliefs and values of the community. Okay, my last characteristic is it has ordained leaders. Uh, so several things. Oh. I think I'll talk about this another time because we're going to get late. <laughs> I have um, I have two notes. Okay, I have. Here's my conclusion. <clears throat> I tried to describe the characteristics of a New Testament church. It has a mission or purpose, it has a shared vision, it has struggles with relational and discipling issues that it addresses, it clarifies beliefs and practices, it has ordained leaders. I try to give you a vision for what this church can become. I believe we can become the kind of church that is described and illustrated in the New Testament. I firmly believe that. I've also tried to give you hope and courage. We each belong to the risen from the dead Lord Jesus. The risen Lord Jesus is present among us by the work of the Holy Spirit. We are not alone. And we are not stuck in our present situation and we can never get out. We have options and together we can find our way. I firmly believe that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are alive today, risen from the dead and by your spirit. You are present with each of us and among us as we are gathered together. And uh, thank you for your word and for the illustrations, um, commands. Um, thank you that you are with us to work in each of our hearts. Now pray that you would work to redeem each of us uh, more fully and give us wisdom in our gathering together, in our conversations. Give us wisdom and direct us by your Spirit. 
and bless each of us and make us a blessing and thank you. Amen.